This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Michael DiBernardo. Michael, do you want to say hi? Hi. Now, we had you on the show about a year and a half ago as we, we record this. It was episode 256, or in binary, it's like one with eight zeros after it. I was very proud to get that, that particular index. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's always fun. And you, you talked about code reading and the architecture of open source applications. And we had uh, Avdi and David Brady on that conversation. So if you're interested in any of that, uh, go check that out. But yeah, this podcast is kind of focused around telling a story and, and giving people an idea of where you came from and what your background is with uh, development in Ruby. So I thought we would dive in and uh, kind of figure out how you got introduced to programming in the first place. Yeah, cool. Um, can definitely start there. Uh, I guess I grew up, I was born in 1981, so by some standards a long time ago and other standards not so long ago. And um, I grew up kind of in the country, so I didn't really have access to internet until I went to university, really. I was on bolts and stuff sometimes, but but nothing like that. And the first time I really got exposed to programming, uh, I had kind of built my first PC with my uncle, who was in the military. And uh, he always got access to weird technology that I wasn't allowed to have. And uh, so I had like a, I think I had like 40 megs of hard drive space and half a meg of RAM. And this was at a time where that was already kind of outdated. And I, I found some shareware game called ZZT, and it was written by the guy who invented or started Epic Mega Games, the, uh, I think they're the folks who make Unreal and Unity. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's this hilarious ASCII character-driven kind of puzzle game where you walk around and there's all these little weird challenges you need to solve. And it turns out that that thing shipped with a full scripting language and like a 100-page manual, but I didn't understand that at the time that that was programming. It was just a thing I could do to make my own games. And so I remember <laughs> printing a hundred page manual on my dot matrix printer to my like parents chagrin because this thing took like six hours to print it and it was really noisy and wasted a lot of paper. But I just, I sat there studying the thing for about a week and then just started cranking through stuff. And I remember the first bug I ever hit that completely crushed me. Actually, I was never able to figure it out until years later when I looked it up online was that um, they had this mechanism where it, you could store flags of events that had happened. It was just a, a bit flip. And I was making this huge complex game because that's what you do when you're a kid. You, you can't start small. Um, and at some point I decided to add a ninth flag to the game, a ninth item that you could get. And it kept really confusing me because it would seem like I was always dropping an other item I had. And it turns out unbeknownst to me, they just had one byte that they were using for all of the flags in the game. And oh, if no. you went beyond 
eight, it just went back to the zeroth one. And there's no way I could have figured that out at the age of, I don't know, 12, I think I was, um, without access to further study. And I didn't really get that till I went to high school. So that, that was kind of how I started. And it wasn't until I got to maybe grade nine or 10 that I realized that what I had been doing before was object-oriented programming. Because it was a little, it was called ZZT OOP. And I never bothered to read what the OOP meant. But um, it was very small talkish. Like you could send messages to individual characters um, who would either pick up the message or just ignore it if you were referencing a message that they didn't want to listen to. Um, but because there were physical characters on the screen, they would like move around and stuff. It, it really helped me later on when I went to actual object-oriented programming where I think some other people were struggling because it reminded me just of, of that game. Um, so strange, humble beginnings. Uh, but yeah, I, I still once in a while go back and look at what that community is doing because they still do some homebrew games now, um, like 20 years later. And, uh, awesome. I, yeah, I had an interesting experience too. When I was at the university of Waterloo, I was teaching first year computer science. Um, and I had about 700 students at my disposal. And I remember giving them a survey at the beginning of a term asking, you know, what, where did your initial programming experience come from or what made you want to take this class? And this was in 2003 or four. So things have probably changed since then. But, uh, about 40% of respondents said video games. And I remember looking at that and feeling like this pit of despair in my stomach because I was thinking, if this is the reason why we're all going into this career, we may get a, a rude awakening when we get out of it. But um, it, it was interesting to me how many people started that way uh, even later into my my education, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I've talked to a number of people that, yeah, they got into either playing video games or building simple games and, you know, thought, oh, well, I'll just do this for the rest of my life. And <laughs> yeah, it, it, it didn't work out that simply, but they're still pretty happy with what they get to do day to day. So I don't feel too bad for them. Um, you know, the, the people that really wanted it, you know, they, they figured out a way to get it usually. So, yeah, I think so. And then it's always interesting too, just to see what people come up with on their own. And I've also talked to a few people who got into gaming and uh, video games kind of brought them into development. And then they started using something like WebGL or doing mobile development and using uh -huh. uh, OpenGL on the iPhone or Android phone. And, you know, they, they had a career of 10 years before they started doing that. But, you know, it worked out for them, too. So uh, a lot of this stuff is being more becoming more and more approachable. And so whatever your initial interest was, you can always go back to it. It's, it's not like it's a done deal. Yeah, and I, um, I mean, I work primarily in web development now. And the, the thing I've always liked doing when interviewing people is uh, bringing in more and more people from, from game development. Because I find when you've got a community that accepts, for example, that anywhere between 80 to 400 milliseconds, depending on who you're talking to, is an acceptable like, request response cycle time. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get somebody from gaming who needs to put something on the screen every 60th of a second, uh, you get a different kind of mindset coming into your team that you may not have otherwise. And it can help add some diversity of thought to how you're approaching certain problems. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so we had you on Ruby Rogues. Um, and I don't remember, have you done a bunch of Ruby or <laughs> what, what? what's your background there? Yeah, cool. So um, I guess I've done... Mostly, I've lived in five language communities, sort of serially. Uh, the first was Perl, because I was a bioinformatics person. Uh -huh. The second was C++. 
I was there for quite a long time. The third was .NET, um, which usually raises some eyebrows. And then the fourth was Python. Gotcha. Uh, and so I've, I've mostly stayed in Python land for the last little while. I've written about 100,000 lines of Ruby. I, I did a check that last time we did this call, I think. And then I did mm-hmm. it again recently, and I've written more since then. But most of it was hobby stuff. There's a couple of weird going back to games. There's a strange Japanese role-playing game maker thing. I think it's literally called RPG Maker. I don't remember. But they wrote the whole energy, uh, the engine in Ruby. And so I ended up picking that up, I think, five, six years ago. And I, that's actually where the bulk of my Ruby experience is. So nothing very, very scalable. But um, I think the last time we spoke, we were mostly focused on the book and not on the language. So right. you had me on anyways. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, just uh, diving into that, how do you wind up picking the language that you're going to work in then? Is it mostly just, oh, I'm interested in this and this is what other people have used or? You know, the up until I, I did a stint at Google, which is how I got sort of indoctrinated into C++. And after spending some time there, I actually was so burnt out on it. It was the first time I actually realized that the language selection would, would affect my daily life um, and, and how I perceived programming. So I spent a full six months, I went back to grad school and I wrote all my assignments in OCaml. And nice. Was, yeah, a suitably hipster thing to do. And that was where it, <laughs> it sort of served as a, a launch pad for me to start thinking about what I would care about and what I wouldn't care about in a language. And what I really came to appreciate a couple of years later was um, more of the tooling and community support around the language. Because at the time, um, I had a couple of buddies in that community who were moving over to Haskell. and Haskell was mm-hmm. just starting to do even a reasonable job of package management. I mean, reasonable compared to what I was used to. And that, that whole environment, I thought this was about 10 years ago, I wasn't super used to. And um, now, many, many years later, the, the things that I find most interesting in a language are the sort of the, the situation that I'm going into. Like I'm, uh, as an example, a couple of years ago, I was splunking around another gaming community, the roguelike community, and I was maintaining um, competitions for a really old game called Angband. It's derived from another game called Moria. And the hobbyist programmers that show up in that community and suffer through like the oldest C89 code you've ever seen to make <laughs> their own game is just amazing. And so uh, there were some folks trying to write new engines for them that they would be a little bit more comfortable with or um, things like that. And so people would turn to Python and I thought at first, great idea. You know, like I'm a Python fan, seems like a simple language for them to pick up. Um, but the things that blew them up were the same things that were blowing them up in C was, which was, you wouldn't expect it, but somebody with a lot of tenacity after they get enough buffer overruns, they're going to figure out what's going on. But the thing where they would really, really get hurt is when they went to distribute their game and they couldn't figure out how to compile it for multiple platforms. I'm not even joking. It would just, it would end entire project. And so that's where I started to look back at, again, at the tooling around the language and how easy it is to distribute what you're working on. And uh, we started tooling around with Golang at that time because there were two things about it that made it appealing for that community. One was that uh, if you do something slightly inefficient in Python, you might notice in Go, you're probably not going to. And the second was that it was super simple to distribute this executable across any platform. Um, and package management was easy. And it wasn't so much easy as it was simple. It was easy for them to understand. Um, and so for me, that's that's really the outlook I take when I'm looking at languages these days is not, 
what's the coolest thing or not coolest, but what's the, what's the most optimal in the long run? It's more, what do we need right now? And what's sort of the community people I have around me and what's going to make it easiest for them to understand. So, uh, the world I live in right now at work is really heavy on, um, on domain. Like we, we work in a really rich domain. It's a financial services company. We work with people's accounting. We work with people's payroll. We work with all of their money movement. And, uh, my sort of background in, in preparing people for that area is, is domain driven design. And by and large, if you talk about that in the Python community, uh, you get a lot of sort of blank faces <laughs> or at, at best blank faces. Um, whereas from what I've experienced talking to Ruby is that's, it's quite the opposite. Uh, and so, you know, living where I live now, if I had to work on this problem from scratch, uh, I might start looking at the languages that have the communities that fit sort of the expertise, the best, because that's where people are going to go going, uh, looking for help. And that to me, it's, it's more the community than it is actually the features in the language is sort of ridiculous, but, uh, they're, they're going to be highly related anyways. So that's sort of my meandering response to that question, I guess. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds like your uh, Ruby experience is limited to just that one application, but it's always interesting to see, oh, okay, you, you know, you've made this journey through all these different languages and communities and, you know, just seeing, oh, okay, so now that you've done all these things, what what does your process look like? What is your thought process there? Um, what What is it that you tend to like about the different communities that you've been in? I mean, is it the... Is it the community that, that brings you around to these now, or is it is it yeah. the technical uh, capabilities, or is there something else to it? Um, yeah, I would have to say usually it's it's indirectly community that brings me around to it. Now I don't go looking for it a lot. Often it's it's friends or friends of friends in the communities that I stay in touch with that kind of when certain people start taking things seriously or, or get excited about things, I similarly get excited. And just working on that AOSA book a year and a half ago, um, I felt like I got enough language indoctrination to last me a couple of years anyways, because we had so many people pitching chapters that were in every conceivable language. Like I had one guy who wanted to write something in Factor, which I hadn't seen in a few years. Um, there were quite a few people who were trying to do things in Lisp. So it, I still bounced around from language to language and, um, pay attention to more of the developments that are happening in the support in those areas than the actual language features. Um, the, the thing I liked that really woke me up to this, you know, when I first joined like a Perl news group in, I think 19, no, sorry, it would have been like 2002. The first time I asked a question and got a response and then responded back, sort of not really thinking. And somebody said, Oh, I'm kill filing you. You're an idiot. I thought about that and I was like, wow, these guys have high standards for even how you ask questions. So that, that started to get me around to, I can learn a lot faster if I can get the respect of these people. And then when I later got to the Python community, it was sort of the polar opposite. People were super tolerant of, of like everything. Uh, and I found that really exciting. I, I just, I found that really energizing, uh, especially at the stage of my career I was at, I'd been programming for like 10, 12 years. I could say things that I knew were stupid and people would be like, oh yeah, that was a stupid thing to say. Here's why. And uh, here's some cool stuff to see in this direction. And they were just super supportive of of, of newbies and, and mistakes and uh, just basically ignorance and people wanting to learn. And I think it's evident in even just the kinds of events that they run in that community. They're often education-focused or science-focused. And again, those two things support each other, I think. So 
that, that was sort of the first time I really was, I felt buoyed up by a community. And um, ever since then, it's been a big part of how I look at what's going on in a language community. Um, even the .NET community, like when I was working in it prior to even really touching Python much, uh, I was always astonished at how helpful people were. I, I don't know why I thought because, you know, maybe in the year 2006, I anticipated that nobody would be working in .NET unless they had to do it to get paid. You know, that, that was my attitude. <laughs> um, I've heard that about more than one technology. <laughs> yeah, but um, I think at that time, too, people were going through a pretty huge renaissance and looking at how, I mean, that's maybe an excessive word to use, but even Microsoft was just starting to make noise about open sourcing more of its ideas or more of its technology. And a lot of the cool stuff that was happening at that time was because people had started open sourcing their own .NET frameworks, even though the core technology was closed source. And so I think just the, the act of people sharing knowledge was new enough to that community that they got really excited about it. And anyone I ever connected to there, like the bulk of my domain-driven design sort of indoctrination happened at that time. And it's because people were just super willing to share resources um, without really being judgy or this is the absolute way you have to do it or it's the only way you have to do it, which is sort of what I expected more there. Um, so yeah, I guess it's been almost 10 years since it's been more like community perception and the, and the kinds of knowledge that's valued in a community that's been more important to me than the, the, the frameworks or the languages themselves. That, that's really great. And um, I have to say that, you know, Microsoft has paid for me and some of my co-hosts of different shows to go out to some of their events. And, you know, the, the old Microsoft was, you know, here's what we're giving you. Here's the way to do this stuff. And the new Microsoft is much more the, hey, let's give you some awesome ways to do things wherever you are at. Mm -hmm. And it makes a huge difference in just what, what people are willing to uh, experiment with and, you know, what they're willing to learn and learn from. And it, it really has trickled down into the .NET and other communities that have been built around Microsoft technologies. So, you know, depending on when you're there, yeah, you know, a, a lot of people are much more open to that than I think they were maybe, you know, five, 10 years ago when it was, we are Microsoft and this is the way that you do it. Yeah, no, I haven't been paying super close attention to this, but I know one of the uh, fellow I went to school with who is a core Python contributor. Uh, his name's Brett Cannon. I know he's working at Microsoft now. I, I'm ashamed to say I don't know exactly what he's doing, but he's very vocal about it. And uh, I know he's working on Python. So they, you know, I think mm -hmm. even in areas where they're not necessarily making core investments, they're... <laughs> They're interested in enough in supporting what's going on there that um, I, I just I find it pretty cool. Yep. So uh, what are you doing with Python these days? Hmm. So uh, since we've spoken, I've become more of a since we spoke last, I guess I've gone through several career shifts. And so I'm um, I'm currently VP of engineering at the company I'm at now. So we've got about 60 engineers and I spend a lot of my time making sure People are learning the things they need to learn to make their careers better and um, creating environments for people to do better work and work more closely with the things they want to be working with or things that are important to them. So it's, it's uh, I, I think it was sort of a path that I was accidentally destined <laughs> to be on because one of the big reasons I got into the AOSA project in the first place was because it was really focused on learning and really focused on 
Now, the thing that always kind of messed me up about computer science in general is that when I talk to people about it, it seems that oftentimes we have a pretty short view of history. And the interesting thing about computer science is that as a discipline, sure, it's grown a lot, but it's really not that old. And so if you wanted to take a year and make a really concerted effort at learning basically the close to the entire history of computer science and software engineering, you could take a pretty good shot at it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get it all, but you would get a lot more than if, for example, you tackled um, the, the nature of Western politics or something. You know, it, it's, it's a different <laughs> yeah. scale. Um, and, and that was sort of the feeling that was in the back of my head when I was picking up open source projects and things to work on. They were rarely writing code projects. They were usually disseminating knowledge projects. They were, for some reason, like even the very first contributions I ever made to Django, um, which is the big Python open source framework was uh, for web, was, was documentation. Because I just, I found it interesting to be able to not just write about um, how this thing works, but why it was built that way. Like what the decisions were in this module and why. And I don't know, that's, that's just always sort of been my, my focus. And the Python community just happens to be really focused on that. They, they do a pretty good job at emphasizing learning and, um, and, and education. So it, it's sort of a roundabout answer to the question. But what I found is that as I got uh, sort of more and more removed from what people would call hands-on keyboard, uh, I learned pretty quickly that you do actually have to stay hands-on keyboard if you want people to take, if you even want the context to understand what people need to be learning. It's, it's really mm-hmm. easy when you remove your hands from keyboard to start abstracting away their problems and, and sort of dehumanizing the things they're living with every day. Um, and so I found that as I went sort of vertical in, in the career ladder, there was a certain point where I hit like, I don't know, make up a word, director level or something, where it was, it was reasonable to stay pretty hands off keyboard and still be able to help people. And actually, as I went one level up, it was harder to do that because there was so much stuff going on on the ground that unless I stayed somewhat connected to it viscerally, uh, it would be hard for me to understand when people came to me saying, hey, I, I have problems with X, Y, Z, that what they were actually articulating is I have gaps in knowledge in this thing I can't talk about because I don't have the words for it yet. Um, and, and that to me has been sort of a, a brain shift, I guess. So most of the Python stuff that I've been doing recently has been just feature work on code that we ship at work. Um, in terms of sort of, uh, community contribution stuff, the, the place that I've been really looking at is that as, as I've helped, you know, the company I work at and and other friends at other companies think about interviewing and, and recruiting people or just even uh, education in their own companies. Uh, that, that sort of statement I said before about the, the history and the origin of things. You know, I find so many people coming in interviews and they, they'll write some web framework code, like some mm-hmm. application code against a web framework. And, you know, they'll start writing some code in a view and then they'll say, oh, this is too much. I'm going to put it in a service. And I'll ask a question like, okay, well, where did you get that? Like, where does that come from? How did you know to do that? And most of the time, the answer reduces to, uh, I saw it in a blog post, or more often than not, I learned it from somebody at my past job, which is a very apprenticeship model. Um, and, and to me, I saw somebody write something the other day, I think, I think it was actually from the Ruby community. It was a tweet I saw somewhere where uh, the, the gist of what they were saying is the world seems to be really hurting right now for sort of a medium level detail enterprise architecture book. And I heard that and I was like, 
that's not something that I would have articulated as a need <laughs> in the world right now. But the more I see people tackling really complex domain problems in these sort of, I would say, last generation languages that are, are now mainstream, like Python and, and Ruby and stuff, um, the more it seems that a lot of people just lack sort of, sort of the, the rigor to, to tackle them without things that are just cobbled together and know what the sources are and see really great examples of how these things look in practice. So for example, if you wanted to tackle um, a problem in the Django web framework using a technique like domain-driven design, it seems kind of silly that one would need to write a tutorial about that because you feel like if everybody just goes to the core sources, they can put it together. But actually that putting together, what I've witnessed is, is quite difficult. Um, and I just like writing about this stuff anyways, and it's, it's really close in line with, with what the AOSA books were trying to accomplish anyways, especially with the most recent volume where we were getting people to write 500 line sort of toy programs and explain their architectural decisions. Um, that medium level enterprise architecture sort of book is, is I guess a modular structure up from there. And I think that's what, that's not, I think I've already started working on it. And, uh, I had a six month break earlier in the year and I wrote a first pass at the book in Python using Django as the web framework as an example. And I realized as I got to the end that, uh, I was not the person to write this book. I think after editing a book for three years, you kind of get the urge to do something on your own. And I got to the end of it. I was like, no, this would be a much better book if the people closest to it wrote the chapters and I edited it. So I pulled in about eight to 10 folks who are going to be working on this. And um, that's going to be my, my project in 2018. Wasn't that the, <clears throat> sorry, all of a sudden I got crud in my throat. Um, no wasn't that the approach of your last book where you brought in a bunch of people to write about different open source approaches? Yeah, it was. And that's why when I, when I <laughs> took a second crack at, or when I started this project in the first place, I was like, well, I don't want to do that again because it's, I've already done it before. Mm -hmm. and, um, I want creative control over this. And I got to the end of it. I'm like, you know, I'm not an ideas person. I'm a, <laughs> I, I'm an editor at heart and it sort of reflects right. how I progress in my career and stuff like that. And I'm usually better at helping people articulate the things they can articulate than I am coming up with the idea and doing a great job of it myself. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had to accept that about myself and, um, I have fun doing it too. So, uh, that's going to be my, my side focus in, in 2018 and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Like a lot of the criticism we got and, and rightfully so about the most recent AOSA book is that, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to see how I could extend, you know, there's always going to be a complaint. If you focus on a certain area, there's always going to be a complaint that you could have gone farther. And mm -hmm. I think the thing that I saw though, is that, and I, we saw this from the beginning is that because there's no continuity across the chapters, because people just wrote about the lesson that they thought was important for their chapter, it's hard to sort of come out of that book feeling like you've built, um, a framework of knowledge that you can really reference when you're done it. It's, it's more like you've picked up 24 cool kind of lessons that you go to a job interview and somebody says, Hey, where did you learn to do that? And they'll say, well, I read this chapter in the OSA book. Okay. But where does it really come from? Well, I'm not sure. You know, like they, they lack right. that, that secondary connection that would help you really start to use that knowledge in a meaningful way. Um, so I, I still think it's a useful resource. I just think, uh, that that's secondary part where you start to really connect the concepts across all the chapters or across all those, those lessons that these people are teaching and, and building sort of that mental model for people is key. And, and that's more what I'm going to focus on in this next one. Awesome. Very awesome. cool. Mm -hmm. So when so you started this project, how, how do you, how do you wind up approaching that? Usually I get angry. <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> I love uh, it. Yeah. I was, 
I was actually in New Zealand and we had just done a big hike and um, I was still working part-time sort of remotely and I can't remember what triggered it, but somebody sent me a couple of code submissions that some folks had submitted and I wasn't angry at the submissions. I was angry at the people who were not at the people. I was angry at the way they had been reviewed um, because the, the reviews themselves were really reductive and, and weren't actually looking at the, the underlying concept that these submissions were trying to, to show. Like when you're writing a code submission for a job, you only have so much time. So we always mm-hmm. tell people like focus on just one thing. And I thought the candidates who'd submitted these things had done a pretty good job about, um, I think at the time it was articulating why they had decided to model certain things explicitly and then just leave certain things to just raw brute force. And I, I thought that actually showed some pretty good insight into um, taking an explicit approach to writing software as a model instead of just as an executable thing that produces results. And that's something that we have a hard time uh, are getting people to articulate sometimes when they're working on a, a difficult domain problem. So I was pretty impressed with what they did and I saw the response to it and I was very unimpressed with that. And uh, that's where I got angry and I was thinking about it the whole hike. And I was like, what, what are we missing? That this is still, you know, people at an intermediate to, to senior level are, are missing these concepts sometimes or, or don't value them. I think that was the bigger thing. Right. Um, and that's what triggers it. So I, I got back and I basically wrote a list of all the things that I'd witnessed in the last four years that I felt personally would be good for people to know, even if they weren't using them, um, in, in sort of the, the area of expertise that we're in. And I shot it off to a friend of mine who, um, is pretty active in the Python community and hates all this stuff because I usually like to get the distinct <laughs> thing. And he came back really supportive and he's like, you should add this, 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 and you should take away this, this, and I think this would be great. And when I saw that, I think this would be great. I was like, okay, that is enough of a boost for me to say that this isn't just me being um, narrow in my applying my experience to what I mm-hmm. think other people should use. It, it seems to have hit a chord with somebody I expected to really reject it. Um, and past that, I try not to get too, too much feedback on it. Cause then me personally, I really start to doubt myself in the early stages. If I shop that idea around to like say 30 people, you are going to get a majority of negative feedback because as engineers were trained, I think to be a little bit, um, uh, like critical of, of things that could go wrong, <laughs> right. And less optimistic about things that could go right. Uh, and, and that starts to get really off-putting in the early stages. So I, I try to get two or three key people who I know are going to be really smart, really connected to things I'm not, and will call me on my crap if I'm doing something that's ridiculous, but will also be supportive because they know it's fun to do silly things sometimes. And um, that's generally how I start, is getting feedback from those people right at the conception stage. And then I just run with it until there's a pretty solid first draft. Because the second thing I've learned is that if you show things to people in a state that seems advanced enough that you've made the key decisions, but it's not quite baked, it's really difficult to get effective feedback at that stage. I saw that mm-hmm. over and over again with the AOSA project when people tried to tried to get prototype chapters reviewed by technical reviewers. Um, it's difficult for a reviewer who's being explicitly asked to be critical to come in and tolerate really shaky foundations at a, a formative stage. You, you kind of need to bake it enough so that they can see what your intent was and can have a pretty solid um, foundation to criticize. And then you may look at that and be like, okay, I'm solid enough in my ideas that I think your criticism is wrong, but the flavor of what I'm hearing implies that I need to change this part. Uh, and 
that's sort of where I'm at right now is we're starting to think about what does that solid first draft look like that is the minimum effort that we can put into a first draft, but it's still a first draft and not a outline because people are not good at criticizing outlines, um, myself included. So that, I don't know if that really is an articulate way of, of saying what that process looks like, but um, it's really early feedback and then don't take much feedback for a little while and then get to a point where feedback's actually really useful and then get a whole bunch of it. Um, <laughs> continuous feedback is just for me demoralizing and actually often wastes the time of the people that you're asking for feedback uh, because they're lost and they don't really know what, what kind of criticism you're looking for um, at a stage where your ideas are not really baked yet. So anyhow, that's, that's the sort of process that I use these days. Cool. So, uh, w- what are you working on then? Just the book? Is there any? Are there any other projects you want to talk about before we uh, start? Uh, no, about? that's that's enough. Uh, Full time job plus that book is going to be a <laughs> twenty eighteen. So I learned that the hard way in I think twenty fourteen to seventeen. So uh, we're we're going to keep it there. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Uh, do you have some things you want to pick or shout out about? I do. I have, uh, I could do three. Um, the first, uh, these are less programming focused than they are. Um, let's say you accidentally find yourself in a lead position or in a, a position where you're responsible for the learning or development of other people or the direction or development of a project that you've inherited or something. So more things that a senior engineer or a technical lead or a, a dev team lead might have to, to think about. So the, I have a mentor at work who's the thing I like the most about him is um, he gets me to read books that I think are just Silicon Valley branding where mm-hmm. he, he forces me to read them and um, he picks the ones that I, he knows I'll, I'll actually take stuff from. So I, I recently read, Radical Candor, which I'm sure has been bat- batted around a lot in every community. And the thing I found fascinating about that book is that, A, I thought I was absolutely going to hate it, and I didn't. But B, the, the actual Radical Candor part of it was pretty boring. Um, the, the book is sort of split into two parts. The first part is really about the, mm, the concept of being open and honest and um, effectively so at work without being too nice or too brutal. And that part I found fine. But the, the actual really interesting part to me about that book is in the last half, there's like a clinic on really aggressively organizing your time to be effective in your work and your life. Um, if you enjoy helping other people, that's, that's kind of how I interpret it. And uh, a lot of that framework is around here's if you find yourself in a situation where you need to be helping people at work or where you need to be organizing projects, um, here's a way to sort of really optimally organize your calendar so that you can do all these things the most effectively and still keep creative time for yourself. So I took a lot of just raw organizational knowledge from that book. And um, if you read it and entirely skip the first half on ostensibly the thesis of the book, I think you still get a lot out of it. So that, that was one of my surprising picks of this year. I'd, I'd highly recommend that one. Um, the second pick that kind of surprised me is that uh, as I'm sure you've probably worked on a software project in your time where it sort of evolved beyond what you ever imagined possible. And other people were 
owning it and it, it sort of had its own direction. Has that, is that something you're familiar with? Yeah, that's happened to me before. Yeah. And so it's, it's this feeling of like this sort of monstrous, like Lovecraftian sort of birth that this thing just keeps going. And often there's, um, there's a whole business direction around it too. And, and all this kind of stuff. So, uh, a friend of mine, one of my colleagues at work, uh, we were talking a lot about what, what strategy means and how you start to take a strategic direction for some of the decisions you're making. And even at a low sort of project level thing, that can be really important, having values and, and direction in sorts of the technical, technical decisions you're making and the, the recommendations you're making for the, the future of that project or portfolio or whatever. So there's a technique by, I, named after a guy who invented it, I think called Simon Wardley, and they're called Wardley Maps. And whenever I've had people talk about strategy before, it's always kind of fuzzy and uh, inarticulate and uh, uncomfortably squishy for, I think, folks who have a a hard technical background. Uh, Wordly maps are a pretty effective way of visualizing sort of the values you're going to use when making decisions and how you want to start evolving that strategic vision that you have for a project or even your life or your business or whatever. And it's been now used heavily as, from what I understand, um, at large technical corporations like Microsoft and, and Amazon mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, so if this isn't something you've heard of, I'd, I'd recommend it. There, I learned a lot about thinking and planning ahead just by sort of um, learning more about this technique. And that was a pretty cool learning in 2017. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Awesome. That, that's something that's new to me. I'll, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's pretty rad. And then the last one, um, this has nothing to do with technology. Uh, I'm Canadian, and mm-hmm. I started my education actually in, in literature before I switched over to programming pretty early uh, in my undergraduate. And I've always been sort of a sucker for Canadian literature, which is I probably objectively pretty bad most of the time. But if you like weird, uh, sort of dark, dystopian, but still somewhat optimistic poetry that has sort of a sci-fi bent to it, there's an, uh, a professor at a university here called York University. His name's Christopher Dudney, and he's pretty weird. And I, I'm guessing he's been referenced by maybe like 10 people on the internet before. But he wrote a, a poetry collection in 1975 called Phobia Centralis. I'll, I have a Goodreads link. I can give it to you after this. And uh, if you're sort of a cyberpunk or dystopian bent person, but also like to appreciate the beauty of nature and life, um, this is a a great, very short poetic work, if you can get your hands on it, um, which is going to be tough. But that's my hipster recommendation for reading for the day. 
Awesome. Um, I'll jump in here with a few picks. So uh, one book that I've been reading lately that's been pretty handy for me, and I've read it before, and I just, I don't know why a lot of the concepts didn't stick, but I'm reading it, and it's like I'm reading it for the first time. It's the E-Myth Revisited. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time kind of running behind the scenes business stuff so that the podcasts keep going out. And this has kind of inspired me to want to build things up. He talks about the turnkey revolution and how um, essentially McDonald's isn't just a business that sells hamburgers, but it's a business that sells businesses to their franchisees. And um, anyway, for me, it was he basically says, you know, you need to build your business as a franchise, even if you're never going to franchise it. And essentially the idea is, is that then, um, you know, all of the things that have to happen for your business to work will continue to happen um, without you having to be present. And, you know, if you've run a business, you know that that becomes kind of a pain that you have to deal with on a pretty regular basis. And so um, anyway, it's been kind of fun to read through that and go, oh, OK, so I can I can start, you know, building my um, franchise manual, so to speak, and make everything happen the way that it's supposed to happen. But it's been kind of fun, too, from the standpoint of being a software developer, because a lot of the things that I could put into the manual, I can write code that will automate 90% of it. And so some of it has been, okay, I'm going to train somebody to do this. And some of it has been, I'm going to write uh, some Ruby to make the job get done. And yeah, some of it's not pretty <laughs> Ruby, but um, at the same time, just, just having these options and realizing wow, you know, there's a lot here that I can do that that I hadn't really thought about before. And uh, between the two, between the automation and delegation and just having that mindset of, you know, what am I doing that I personally don't need to, you know, do hands-on every time it has to be done has been really fun just to see, okay, where are the limits here and what can I push? And so um, I'm going to pick that book. And then um, the other thing that I'm going to, pick is um zapier and i've picked this on on several of the shows in the past um but i've been building my own service to help me manage a lot of these uh podcast related things especially the sponsorships um just making that automatic so that the sponsors aren't worried about what's going out and when it's going out because the system will just put it out when it's supposed to go and um Anyway, so that's been a ton of fun and just uh, looking at all of these different systems and then um, looking at ways that I can pull in like uh, Calendly or Schedule Once or some of these other systems. Um, Zapier has a lot of those integrations already built. And so looking at those issues and those problems and figuring out how I can approach uh, those things in particular and say, okay, so I don't have to code that because somebody else has already done that work. How do I take advantage of what's there is is just been really interesting as well. And so, you know, it's more, you know, businessy slash, gee, I can program against this picks. But um, that, that's kind of been my world lately. And it's been really, really fun to just dive into it. So um, anyway, those are my picks. Uh, one last thing that I wanted to ask Michael is if people are enjoying this conversation and they're thinking, man, I'd like to connect with Michael maybe, you know, see what you're thinking about or working on these days, you know, check in on that book. Uh, where do they go for all that stuff? 
Good question. Thanks for asking. Um, at MD Bernardo on Twitter is probably the best way. I am highly inactive there, but I do respond to to DMs and stuff, and I'm going to be more active in the in the new year as this new project kicks off. So that's probably the easiest way. All right, sounds good. Well, thank you for coming and uh, sharing your expertise with us and helping us tell your story. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. All right, well, we'll wrap this up and we will have another story for you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. 